The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Podcast. I'm Randall James, and I believe I can fly. With me is Tyler Campstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. And there we have it, our first copyright strike. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They only did like three seconds. I think it's fine. Uh, Yeah, Tyler, what are we going to do today? We're going to talk about flight. Uh, We are going to look at why flight is important, why it's complicated, how it actually works, and how to fix it. Well, not necessarily how to fix it, because it's Mostly not broken, but basically how to deal with it, both as a player and as a DM. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting topic when we first started talking about it. Because a lot of times when we talk about mechanics, we want to talk about the rough edges. And it felt like really here, just most folks don't include flight in their games. It's not really a conscious decision in a lot of cases. Uh, Not everything flies. Like, clearly not everything flies. Most things, in fact, don't. You can go huge amount of time without encountering something that flies. You might go oh, your entire career in D&D never once play a character that flies. So since it's not a constantly used portion of the rules, a lot of times people just don't understand how it works. And when it comes up, it's like, ah, it's like walking, but up. <laughs> yeah. Long time holdovers from 3.x will remember the real struggle that flight was in 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 those editions and different flight categories pathfinder one bless them they fixed a lot of things flight was not one of them (laughs) turning it into a skill was a really bizarre choice it's like i did i roll for flight yes Mm -hmm. oh (laughs) yeah what what happens if i'm flying and then i fail a roll for flight you fall you fall Uh, okay keep going that brings us to you know fifth edition there's a lot of ways to fly some races can naturally fly more or less effectively, and depending on which book version you have, more or less effectively. You've got your Aarakocra, you've got fairies, Owlin, you've got a particular flavor of Tiefling, you've got... It's the diet flavor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Does that make them lighter so they, they fly better? Is that... <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's exactly it. That was the joke. I nailed it. All right. <laughs> and then you've got all of your various magical ways, um, you know, You've got at the most basic a broom of flying, which is utterly undercosted. <laughs> then you know so, some more typical things like winged boots. You've got the spell fly, which is how a lot of things are going to fly for the, the vast majority of their career if they're going to do it at all. We have magic carpets. Oh, we have magic carpets. We have put yourself into a bag of holding and get strapped to someone else who can fly. <laughs> we have okay. uh, winged mounts, particularly like- if. You have uh, gone and read my uh, recent post about what bards should take. You should be a bard, a level 10 bard on a Pegasus. 
because you should be a level 10 bard on a Pegasus. I like the, the Mitch Hedberg uh, method for flying. It's like, hey, hey, man, can you fly? Great. I'm coming with you. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so there's a lot of things that actually can fly, and most people just sort of don't think about it and don't choose to. Yeah, which is really a shame because flight is a massive tactical advantage. Like We did an episode on the Trask early in the podcast where we talked about how a level 1 Aarakocra with a cantrip can kill the Tarrasque. And if that doesn't sell you on how good flight is, I don't know what we're doing here. The monster creation rules in 5e increase the creature's defensive CR by, I think, half a step or a full step. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. If they can attack at range and fly below CR 10. 5th edition assumes that by about level 10, players have some way to counter flying enemies. And honestly, if you've gone that far and can't handle flying enemies, somehow you're probably dead. Like the, you got to figure that out. And fortunately, we're going to do this whole episode and we're going to tell you some things about how to handle things that fly. We're going to talk about D&D today. We're going to talk about Pathfinder. If you're playing other games, anything that's more like futuristic technology-wise, like your Shadowrun, your Star Wars, whatever, those are going to have flight that's probably a little easier to deal with because there's more shooting involved. But D&D inherent, D&D, Pathfinder, Dungeon Fantasy games, inherently there's a lot of running around and trying to hit each other with swords. And if you're a sword guy and you're trying to fight a flying thing, being a sword guy can kind of suck if you don't know what you're doing. When your best option is throwing your sword at the enemy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We've it's been more there. likely than you'd think. <laughs> All right, so so let's start with 5th edition because we've already hit on that a whole bunch. So there's an important distinction between non-magical flight and magical flight. Now, it feels pretty similar. They both work basically the same way when you're just flying around, but there are a few rules that specifically care about how you're flying, and it's mostly the rules around when you stop flying. Regardless of how you fly, if your speed is reduced to zero you fall. If you have the hover ability, which if you look at monsters, some monsters will have a fly speed and in parentheses hover. If you have that hover feature, usually you don't fall. Most things can't hover, fortunately, so if you're the if you're sword guy on the ground, all you have to do is reduce the flying thing's speed to zero or otherwise remove its ability to move. There are certain things that remove a creature's ability to move, such as uh, Otto's Irresistible Dance. They spend all of their movement dancing and cannot move. And since they have lost the, since they have lost the ability to move, they fall. Unless, uh, again, unless they're flying magically or can hover. Basically, flying, keep going... You don't actually have to move anywhere. Like, you could have all the speed in the world. You could have five-foot move speed and just kind of hang out in one place. There's nothing that prevents you from hovering in 5th edition, even if you don't actually have the hover trait, which is weird. Yeah, if you're flying, just keep moving and keep in mind how the falling rules work in 5th edition. Actually, I want to be clear on the the movement first. So you have to have a speed of non-zero, but do I actually have to use my speed in order to maintain my flight? In other words, can I just stay in place knowing that I wasted some of my movement? Yeah, pretty much. It's effectively the same as just flying in a circle, so forcing them... Like, the game forcing you to move some distance is kind of silly, especially okay. considering how forgiving D&D is. 
in terms of movement, even if you're in melee in the air, safety donut. You just fly around in a circle around whatever you're fighting, and you're fine. That's right, even if you're flying, there would be an opportunity cost. Uh, does the safety donut become a safety sphere? Yes. And, <laughs> boy, thinking in three dimensions is a thing that I'm going to get to down here in a bit, because that is one of the things that makes flying the hardest to deal with. Yeah, that roll yeah. 20 doesn't give me voxels. <laughs> that That is absolutely true, and honestly, that's kind of a pain. All right, so let's talk about falling real quick before we go on. So... How much damage do you take when you fall? Not as much as you'd think. So you take 1d6 damage for every 10 feet you fall, up to a maximum of 20d6 damage, which averages to 70. Very unimpressive. By about level 5, many characters can survive a maximum distance fall, as long as they're full hit points. When you hit level 20, like... If your party's in a flying city and you need to escape the flying city, just jump. You'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I see the look of wrath on Random's face. I did that once in one of his games in 3-5. It was great. <laughs> we base jumped off of a flying city to uh, circumvent a boss fight. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> D&D's falling damage is very, very gentle. It's also bludgeoning damage. So if you're a barbarian and you're raging, you only take half of it. It's very gentle. But at the same time, if you do fall and take damage, you land prone. And if you're fighting flying enemies... Or, or if you are a flying creature, if you are knocked prone, fall, you're going to take some damage, you're going to be prone, and then a bunch of people are going to jump on you. So if you are flying, don't get knocked prone. This is a place where I need to interject. <laughs> First off, when you fall, and a, a quick note for clarity here, when Tyler was talking about max height, there is actually an important thing in the, I think it might be Xanathar's, you fall 500 feet a turn you're guaranteed to be possible to hit terminal velocity in six seconds, which I would have to work on the physics of that, but <laughs> regardless. Technically speaking, knocking something prone in midair forces it to fall, even if it can hover, even if it is flying magically. One of my few fixes for realism's sake is that doesn't make any sense to me. And just like uh, a thing which we brought up in a, some previous conversation is that that doesn't happen at my table. That is a thing that I would strongly suggest. If something can hover, if it's flying magically, knocking it prone should not cause it to fall out of the air. Because, like, what does prone look like in three dimensions? You just you rotate 90 degrees on tilt. I mean, Superman flies prone. Yes. Or, <laughs> or, or he can stand up. And that's it's it's yeah, more to make aerodynamic. A Look, <laughs> if you're going to be fast enough to fly through space backwards to rotate the planet, you have to fly prone so that you're aerodynamic in space. That's basic physics, really. Super, Superman. I do. I this 500 feet per turn. Um, I'd actually never heard that, and that's interesting to me. So, could I theoretically, let's say I'm in that flying city and I'm 3,000 feet above the ground, if I were to be knocked prone or if I were to lose my ability to fly for a turn? On the next turn, can I potentially recover and not smush into the earth? Yes. Xanathar's clarified that one. You can spend half of your movement, like after the first round of falling, you can spend half of your movement to arrest the fall, and then you're no longer prone, and you can continue flapping about however you please. Arrest the fall. Yeah. You, you, can, you can spend half your movement to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's fair. That's interesting. Like, there's a real frame of reference problem happening here. That like your velocity is high enough that, like, you actually need to decelerate. But we don't. <laughs> no second order derivatives in five e. Yeah. 
<laughs> as a reminder uh, for Tyler, which has never come up on this podcast yet. So uh, welcome everyone to the in joke. In D and D, physics are so broken that spheres don't roll. <laughs> yes. Uh, someday we'll explain that joke to the Patreon folks. D and D has very little actual material, and there's a problematic amount of ways that it can go wrong. Thinking three dimensionally immediately creates problems. You know, it, to start off, just some real basic like. Okay, how do I do this logistically? If you're on a, a map, are you going to indicate that something's flying? Like a, a, in a real space map, you know, do you stick it on an empty dice box? Do you stick it on something else? Do you try and, like, have a... a I mean, I've, I've seen people do, like, little twist-tie rings for concentration. Maybe you do that for flying. As soon as things get three-dimensional, one of the immediate problems is distance. Because mm-hmm. suddenly you have to do trig... <laughs> Every single time you want to think about how far something away something is. What a, right Pythagorean theorem, right? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Yes, it <laughs> doesn't make it any better. <laughs> <laughs> there's not like things in the way. Cover becomes a really preposterous thing to try and figure out when you have to start thinking like, okay, like how high is this? Does it intersect with this line? Mm-hmm. This is one of the things where roll twenty actually helps a lot. Towards the end of the long-running Rise of the Rune Lords game, I imported a new player, and God bless them, they came in and said, oh, we're flying a lot because we're at high level. Spoilers for an upcoming episode. I'm just going to write a function into Roll20 so that you can click on this and it will give me the the hypotenuse. That made it great because it's like, ah, oh, yes, you know, now I actually can target my spells at 240 feet or whatever. Because another thing about uh, once you start getting airborne, distances start to become a lot bigger because it's not like there's a lot of stuff in the way. So you can clearly see people from the heck over there. Can we get that equation and stick it in the show notes? Because I think, all right, we should ask. We should, uh, yeah, Yeah. people will use that. That is the sort of thing that D&D casually says, yeah, you can fly. And also doesn't tell you about all the things you have to think about when you do. Yeah, D&D kind of just assumes that everyone's still going to be in like a, combat box essentially like you've got your 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot cube and everybody's gonna fight inside that and the first person who casts fireball is a jerk <laughs> a real standoff <laughs> i I'm, I'm thinking about this like even thinking about using like ranged weaponry in the real world there is an advantage to having the higher ground i believe we're all familiar with this that D ignores right like if it's 40 foot from you to me it doesn't matter if i'm flying above you i can shoot down to you you can shoot up to me and and it's effectively equivalent, right? Well, 5th edition actually, I mean, calls out that would be a decent reason to grant advantage or disadvantage. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And that's not game-breaking either, right? It's Probably absolutely not. not. And it, it's, in fact, one of the easier ways to get yourself advantage if you are trying to, you know, do something like be a, a bow rogue is just yeet yourself up a tree. Congratulations. <laughs> Boy, you talk about ranged weapons. I hesitate to jump ahead here a bit, but... Yeah, when, when you're, like, a couple hundred feet out of the way, gravity is still gravity. And uh, previous editions didn't handle things nearly so well as just advantage or disadvantage. That's we'll true. Get there. 
<laughs> so uh, we've talked about the rules for how flight works in 5th edition, so I want to jump over to Pathfinder 2nd edition. There are a lot of similarities, but there are some very important differences. Paizo chose to f- balance flight very differently from both 5th edition and from even 1st edition Pathfinder. There are some overlapping things between 5e and PF2, like if your speed is reduced to zero so you can't fly, you fall, things like that. So so let's start with Pathfinder 2nd Edition's three-action system. So every creature on its turn gets three actions, unless it's a minion, in which case like you spend an action to command it and it gets two. So if you are flying... In order to stay aloft, you must spend one action on your turn to take an action with the fly trait. Mm. Now, there are two specific actions in the core rules. One of them is just called fly. One of them is called maneuver and flight. So you're going to take one of those two actions in order to stay in the air. So if you are flying, no matter how, unless you've got some specific thing that says you don't need to spend an action to fly and you can just hang out, you are going to spend one of your three actions on your turn to stay in the air. So being flying costs you a third of your action economy, which is huge. So that alone is a huge balance point that can bring a lot of creatures down onto the ground when they're attacking because they want that extra action to do stuff. So like big creatures like dragons, they have to decide, like, do I stay in the air where it might be relatively safe or do I get down on the ground and do 50% more things with my turn? Yeah, just spending that action, very important. It also means if you have flying minions, they're spending half of their actions just to stay in the air, so you might want to land them and have your like pet hawk or whatever wander around on the ground and attack people. Well, and, and to double down, right, if you have that minion, you're spending one action to give two actions to your minion, mm-hmm. and that minion is potentially forced to turn those two actions back into one action. Exactly. That's another question is, is that one action your minion just spent honestly better than what you might have done with that action? Uh, yeah, you you have to weigh that opportunity cost basically every turn. Sometimes it will be because, like, multiple attack penalties and things like that. But, yeah, it definitely adds a cost to flying minions that otherwise have a huge edge over everything else because flight is so useful. So just like in 5th edition, like I said, if you're dropped to zero speed, if you can't move, or if you're knocked prone, you fall. Now, let's talk, jump ahead real quick and talk about Pathfinder's falling rules because they are way more brutal than 5th edition. So in 5th edition, it's 1d6 per 10 feet fallen, maximum of 20d6. Pathfinder, it's one, one damage, just no dice, one damage for every two feet fallen starting at six feet. So you can fall five feet and be fine. You fall six feet and you take three damage. And the, it maxes out at... 750 damage, which will kill you dead. So uh, you do not want to hit terminal velocity in Pathfinder. The fall speed is also considerably faster. You still fall 500 feet the first round, just like in 5th edition, but every round after that, it's 1,500 feet. Acceleration. All right, I like this. Yeah. With these numbers, it almost feels like maybe they did the math. I also like that uh, Pathfinder 2, they added the terminal back to terminal velocity. I think that's great. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So if if you're going to convert from 5th edition to Pathfinder 2nd edition, do it after you go base jumping. Good. (laughs) Call back to earlier in the episode, Random brought up 3.5 and Pathfinder 1st edition where you had to make checks to fly. So in 3rd edition, there was a skill fly. In Pathfinder 1st edition, it got rolled into the acrobatics skill. 
and you had to make acrobatics check to hover and do certain other things in the air, like make sharp turns, which, boy, making a skill check to turn while flying in a game that doesn't have facing. Great. Pathfinder First Edition, you would get a skill bonus to acrobatics check depending on how good your fly speed was. So there was like poor, average, good, perfect, and you got a scaling skill bonus. So if you're really good at flying, you could make basically any check on a natural one. So it wasn't a huge problem. So acrobatics has remained in Pathfinder Second Edition. Acrobatics has remained that skill that you use to do things that are hard while flying. So Unfortunately, <laughs> none of that is explained. Uh, what those difficult things are is not explained. There is the maneuver and flight action, which is part of the acrobatic skill that you can use to do difficult things. And the description of the action says things like make a sharp turn, fly directly upward, fly into a strong wind, except for none of those things require checks. Those are just things you can do. If you fly into a strong wind, you just do it at half speed. If you fly straight up, you just do it at half speed. If you hover, you just spend the fly action and don't move. The maneuver in flight action, just pretend it doesn't exist. It is completely useless. I don't understand why they wrote it. Doesn't make any dang sense. I'm, I'm trying to think of the things I would actually consider difficult while, fly, while flying, right? Like mm-hmm. pulling out a... a spell component and using it without fumbling and dropping it feels like something would be very difficult to do while flying. Uh, luckily I could not find in the PF2 book what the material spell components are. So I suppose this is fine. <laughs> yeah. We, we still haven't figured that one out. Have we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mystery, mystery still sitting around. Yeah. Just, just stick your hand in your pocket and just do your somatic components in your pockets. It's fine. So I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying correctly. So they, they say you might use maneuver in flight as an action to do these difficult things that we've already explained how you do with a regular fly action. Yeah. Such as flying in the wind, taking half speed. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. That feels like a a minor oversight. And I'm really curious about this. I want to go back further. You said flying straight upwards, you might fly at half speed. Yeah. It can, it's basically difficult terrain if you fly straight up because it's hard. Yeah. Gravity is hard. That that makes sense. So once again, 5e has no acceleration. There is no gravity. So this isn't a thing in 5e, yeah? Correct. Which is weird because this is another place where they, I think they maybe went a little too far into simplicity because where Pathfinder 1 got those flight descriptors was from 3.0, 3.5. And there was like a, a table that anyone who did a lot of flying had very well memorized because, it, it I mean, it really was things like there were poor, clumsy, average, good, perfect. And on those tables, it would tell you, like, um, only good and perfect can hover. Only perfect can fly up with no speed penalty. But where it got really weird was uh, anything below good, you started having things like minimum forward distance to turn 90 degrees, a classic example of how this would hose DMs was dragons. Dragons had enormous, like, 200, 300-foot fly speeds at clumsy maneuverability. If you wanted to try and fly a dragon and you didn't give it a feat which you could find in Savage Species, maybe, um, to improve your flight category, which later got reprinted in Races of the Wild because Raptorans. We'll get to them in a second. 
you would have to like you would have to actually do the math for okay i need to like advance 30 feet so that i can turn so that i can do this and you you would have to do this stuff during your combat with a dragon and it was a mess i'm already convinced my dragon walks that's that's what he does (laughs) yeah Exactly. A lot of times that was actually the best idea for flying creatures was you'd essentially hop. Like, you'd fly some distance, land, because it was way faster than turning in the air, and then just turn and fly back the other direction. But again, these games didn't have facing rules. Right. <laughs> so, like... The, what does it even mean to turn? Like, exactly. my, my my direction... Like, the, my momentum is carrying me in a particular direction, mm-hmm. and I would like to change... The, the vector of my momentum, and that is turning Yep. in a game with no turning. Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> I, it, it makes sense. It seems silly, but I, I buy that, right? But, yeah, when you're running full speed, it is actually super easy to be going, like, at, at your full speed, and then while you're running, cut 90 degrees. Like People do that every day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, well, we're all on the same page. Yes. So, so if I can take one more pot shot at Maneuver and Flight, I have a thing written into the show notes that I drives me nuts. It has descriptions for success, failure, critical failure, like many things from Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Success, you succeed. Failure, you fail. Critical failure, as failure, but more dire. <laughs> Good. That, that's all it gives you. <laughs> Thanks. On Great. failure, you turn into a dire character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the DM just looks you in the eyes and like holds the contact for a second. Just you're a failure. Jeez, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it would hurt. It a lot. sure would, man. What the, let's save that one for the episode on critical failure. Good. On uh, on that note, this this horrifically unchill DM. <laughs> what are they going to do about flight? We've kind of covered how. Flight can be used really problematically. Well, we touched on it a bit. So a a lovely example that I need to do, Tyler, as he (laughs) is wont to do, decided that I need to be a dinosaur that flies around magically and carries the entire party on my back, and thus was the Stegosaurus bus. And the Stegosaurus bus drives itself over an invading army of orcs, 200 feet off the ground so the orcs can't really effectively shoot bows at them and then the wizard sitting on top just drops fireballs to his heart's content so yeah, yeah this checks out okay <laughs> right and well and, it, and if you're an orc are you really gonna shoot a flying stegosaurus above you like that's a marvel when it starts <laughs> dropping fireballs on you you might i mean that's right. fair that's fair <laughs> so functionally the the problem here is distance the problem was the you know these orcs you know I'm I'm reading like generic orc stat block and they're like okay well they they have swords and javelins javelins only go eighty feet. <laughs> yep. One of the things that I needed to really quickly add into my game was one of the possible fixes for how to make it so that flight is still tactically strong without immediately causing a stegosaurus bus a flight ceiling. And thus that it was that in my game, nothing, not player characters, not NPCs, could fly more than 100 feet off the ground. When you put something like that into the game, it still gives meaningful value to flight. You know, you can still get a decent amount out of the way. But 
it's not so far that javelins, bows, spells aren't going to be able to reach the target from the ground, which is really going to be the the best thing. You know, it, it means that you need to have some cost to attack things up in the air without it being just literally impossible. One thing to think about. I, I have to say, I really don't like that as a fix. <laughs> now, the problem is, I don't know if I can do better. Like, I feel like if if those are the shenanigans that your players want to bring into the game, you've just got to bring counter shenanigans, right? <laughs> oh, like, absolutely. Oh, yeah, the, these orcs happen to have, like, an orc wizard, and this orc wizard has fireballs of its own. Like, is that... It's absolutely a valid fix. I th- This was my... I can't improvise something for an army right now. <laughs> Just no, no, you can't do that. Absolutely not. No, right. I, right. In my head, it's like I'm 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 riding the Stegosaurus bus and I'm casting my fireballs, and then I look in front of me and I see a bunch of orcs riding out riding towards me on a triceratops, and it's like ah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I 100. percent This was definitely a a failure of in, of imagination on my part okay. at the time. There are definitely some better ways. Well, that's the, you know, kind of top end of the scale. I mean, I, I think that as in, he was like a 13, 14th level druid at that point, mm-hmm. uh, which once again, I will bring up this ridiculous line that Pathfinder or that Paizo wrote into their book. Players may have exotic forms of movement. They wrote that into the start of this chapter. It was <laughs> never addressed again, and they just expected that you would walk anyway. No, that, that's a pretty exotic form of movement. I'm, yeah. I'm going to say, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Taking a look back through 3.x, uh, it's another thing that I touched on recently, Raptorans. Races having flight is kind of a problem in 5th edition because there's four or five of them that just have flight. They can just fly. At level one, you can kill a Tarrasque. Great. That's kind of nutty from a, a balance perspective because if, if you're a level one character with a, a bow or a cantrip and you're fighting a lot of standard level one enemies, almost none of which fly, they can't do anything to you. Some of them can maybe like do some ability or, or something like that. But the vast majority of low-level things, they're just dudes with swords or you know some monstrous equivalent. If you're running into this problem a lot, particularly if there's like somebody who is making this a, a real problem, I, I do recommend actually going and looking back at how Raptorans got their flight. It was a really interesting progressive mechanic up until level 5, what well, is hit dice 5 because... 3.x cared more about hit dice, especially because multi-classing was a much bigger thing. But basically, up until 5th level, you could just glide. You couldn't fly. You could glide and, like, 10 feet forward for 1 feet down off of things. From 5th hit dice to 10th hit dice, you could fly at, a like, a 30-foot fly speed for minutes per day. Um, and it was 5 minutes split up into 1-minute increments that you could choose. And then at level 10, then you just, you have a fly speed. Great. Go nuts. Well, and with that 30 foot fly speed post glide, could you actually climb for that minute? Yeah. Like you you had full flight speed. Okay, cool. Yeah, exactly. So like, so you could, you know, you could fly they had average maneuverability, but you could take the feet to make it up to good, which you needed to do unless you got it from some other source. (laughs) Cause the, the jump from average to good was enormous. That is a way to introduce something like this. If you do find a, flying characters being an enormous thorn in your side at low levels is just say you know this is very strong i am running into problems providing you a challenge while not making this so hard for the rest of the party let's tone down your wings a little bit 
and, and see how that brings you back into line. It's not you. It's me. I, I can't. I, I do want to say, like, and, and I want to go all the way back to the Mounted Combat episode. Part of what's interesting to me is that this is really only an issue in large open volumes of space. Big chambers in a dungeon, outdoors, this is an issue. You know, under like a forest or a jungle canopy in a dungeon in buildings, this is less of an issue. Usually, yes. A lot of times you're going to be medium creatures fighting other medium creatures. So if the ceiling is 15 feet high, that's when flight becomes a problem. Like it's the bar is that low. Because if you have five foot tall medium creature, five feet of danger donut, safety donut, and then you're flying Aarakocra in that next five feet, that is enough for flight to matter because most melee creatures aren't using reach weapons. They won't have reach greater than five feet. Like, even in a house with really high ceilings, your ceilings are going to be, like, ten feet high. So in in a place where humanoids live, that's probably not going to be a thing. So you're not going to have any big protracted flying battles inside most people's houses. But inside, like, big structures like castles or a banquet hall or some fancy temple or something like that, you've got the big sweeping ceiling. So even though you're inside, you might have Aarakocra and Alan hanging out near the ceiling being problems. Yeah, I guess more of what I'm thinking, though, is that, like, most of the ranged weapons that you are carrying, like, if you're carrying javelins, you know, it, you're not even going to roll with disadvantage to hit this creature. Hopefully. M- most of your ranged weapons, kind of, the, or uh, ranged magic spells, it's going to be the same game, right? You should be able to to hit them with most things, even cantrips. So it's not debilitating as long as some of these option, options are available to you. Where it really becomes debilitating is when we start thinking about, like, okay, well, you have a 100-foot fly height or 200 foot fly height that's when things start to get really sad right so that definitely tips things in the player's balance because players are much better equipped to switch to a ranged weapon even if you're not super great with it like your your great sword wielding fighter should still carry around some javelins to throw at things but most of those melee monsters they don't have options like what's a lion gonna do (laughs) polar bear cr what like two three enormous apex predator hunts humans for food someone is 10 feet above me i guess i'll die yeah runs away from wizard with broom yeah no that makes sense (laughs) i'm I'm just thinking about that meme about like lions jumping 30 feet and the (laughs) good (laughs) we'll come back to jumping 30 feet in the air in a little bit because let me uh randall our tuesday game uh, the next time we play, we're going to be fighting a dragon, and this episode is going to come out like a week and a half after we have that fight, and our poor DM doesn't realize <laughs> that I can now jump like 30 feet in the air. Yeah, so, but can you grapple uh, creatures larger than yourself? I sure can. <laughs> well, this is going to work out great. <laughs> yeah. Bear hug grills. Yep. Uh, <laughs> grills. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it occurred to me I can have our monk... Uh, aid me on the athletics check to jump where and i can grow claws we're literally doing a fastball special <laughs> i love this <laughs> yep uh, that's right we snuck an x-men reference in here yeah and uh while, while we're at it pay attention to rpgbot.net's uh twitter live feed on tuesday or wednesday and uh tuesday we'll figure it out okay i, I mean this episode's coming out like a week and a half after the game so hopefully okay, everyone's seen it so this game by the way since you know none of you live in the same place or not many of you i think you're playing on some virtual tabletop right roll 20 yeah 
how are you tracking flight there? Like, it, do you do symbols on a thing? Do you do, like, do you just write it on in notes that everyone looks at? This is, this is one of those things that I was touching on earlier. Like, yeah. you know, in real space, you, you have some like physical options that you, mm-hmm. you can just set a model on stuff, but in a virtual tabletop, there are just not good ways. We declare it post facto when it's to our advantage. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Alternatively, if it gets off the ground, we just kill it first, so it's not a problem. Um, the best solution I've seen in Roll Twenty: if you click on a token, it'll give you those little the little three circles, like you can use them for health bars, things like that. Just make one of them their altitude. It's it's not great. No one can see it except the DM, but it's written down somewhere, and that's. I feel like that's an improvement, and you can always just ask your DM, like, hey, how high off the ground is this one? Wait 30 seconds, and then ask, hey, remind me. Perfect. And then eventually the DM will get so angry, all of the enemies will land, and you've solved your flight problem. It's a social fix. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Boy. <laughs> so so going, briefly going back to fixes for flying races in 5th edition, and we could theoretically talk about fixes for flying races in Pathfinder 2. I don't think there are any yet. Uh, I looked. I haven't been able to find any. My knowledge of Pathfinder 2nd Edition is not universal, so please uh, correct me somewhere if I'm wrong. In 5th Edition, there are several flying races, not even counting the lineages. So you can have flight right from level 1. And if you as a DM have allowed a flying character into your game and weren't prepared to handle it, allow me to introduce you to the Bloodhawk. It is a CR 1-8 creature. It's essentially a hawk with pack tactics. And, oh yeah, I see the faces. Yep. (laughs) So, uh, roughly three or four of these things is an appropriate challenge for one level one character. So throw four of them at your your level one Aarakocra cleric and say, uh, fight this Tarask, and just lay down the law, level one. And, and so there we have it. First off, I provided your attempt at social fix, you know, try and, like, say, okay, we, we need to tone you down, and, uh, you know, let's give you some, like, additional flight over time. And then if that fails, there's your mechanical fix. Oh, no. Yeah, Bloodhawks. Uh, I, do, I don't understand how they're that low CR. How are hyenas CR zero? Question for another day. They also have fact tactics. Uh, okay. <laughs> We've talked about flying players, handling them as a DM. Real quick, I want to talk about airships. Yeah. Because who doesn't want to talk about airships? There's, the concept is so cool. There are airships in 5th edition. You may not have seen them. They appear in two places. One, they appear in Eberron, because canonically in Eberron, airships are a thing. They've been there since Eberron was a setting. They're very cool. They're powered by elementals. They look neat, and they're made by air that is... Or they're made with wood that is neutrally buoyant in the air. It's really cool. And then, there's an airship in Storm King's Thunder for some reason. The, the Eberron ones are actually really cool. I mean, it's they fit really neatly into the lore. Um, it, it's clear that they put a lot of thought into this. The, so uh, Eberron has this whole thing of dragon marks where, like, long ago in a distant land, <laughs> there were, t- like, 12 houses that formed, and you know, these were as a result of dragon pacts, and they get special abilities um, based on, like, 
magic tattoos that show up when they hit puberty. I promise this isn't My Little Pony. <laughs> but one of the houses is very thunder and lightning related, and they're the only ones who can pilot these ships, period. If you don't have that particular dragon mark, you just can't. And so it, you know, it's one of those like really interesting things that features into the uh, lore of that world that they have a monopoly on them, and for now they're being pretty chill about it, but they could very easily just say, nah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining building a character for a campaign in the setting and just being like, yeah, so I took this background. Why do you take that background? No reason. No reason. No. <laughs> I don't have dreams. <laughs> yeah. Mark of the Storm as as a race option, not super great, but they can drive lightning trains and airships and elemental galleons, and that's pretty sweet as a racial as a racial trait. I'm gonna feel like that's actually how you make money on the weekend, right? Yeah. Like, hey, I will captain your airship for you. Uh, during our downtime, and then I'll come back and I'll I'll go do my adventuring. There you go. Until one day I save up enough money to get my own charter. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> let me tell you a story about saving up money to buy yourself an airship. So there. Uh, all right. A long-term player in the the game that uh, Tyler and I used to be in for many years found this. 3.5 OGL published thing that was like the anime handbook. It, it, I mean, it had like a dozen classes that you could play as. Uh, I mean, all of the tropes. It had, you know, a different, like it, it basically attempted to balance the fact that spellcasters were overpowered by like introducing character point options. And so like your classes didn't really have a lot of features. They just gave you like more and less points to go buy abilities and then tacked onto the back, they said, okay, well, if we're going to be talking about anime, we would be remiss to not talk about mechs. And so there was this whole section about piloting mecha and how to like have chase sequences and, and how to you know do upkeep and, and all this cool stuff. And then a whole nice section about how to build one. And they said, you know, like, okay, we've we've got these like build point costs, and it, you know, it was very whatever, and then Tucked into one little tiny paragraph was, oh, and by the way, if you want to import this into your te- you know standard fantasy world, just take the mech point cost, square it, double it. That's the gold point cost. So you could just throw money into making a mech if your DM would allow it. And that was a thing that I did because, and, and we will link this in the show notes, um, it's still available on uh, DriveThruRPG. You could definitely just say, all right, I want a magic flying rock that's invisible and has a portal to a Morton kind of magnificent mansion on it. <laughs> and that was the same character that figured out that he could suddenly make all of the magic items his friends wanted for 35% the cost. And the same character that figured out that he could run an evil organization and that by far the most effective thing for them to do was just legitimate business. <laughs> Here I was running the mafia as a the best Italian restaurant in town, and then using that money to build a spaceship. It was a weird game. It sure was. And I thought I was cool because I could ride a dinosaur in that game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think, uh, if I remember correctly, that supplement was Big Eyes, Small Mouth, which... That makes sense for what BESM stands for, yes. Yeah, BESM, Big Eyes, Small Mouth. It's still in print. I, I saw it when we went to PAX West last year. 
Um, I imagine it has probably changed some since the 3X OGL days, but yeah, it's still around. Big eyes, small mouth. Yeah, so airships, flying space rocks, anime mechs in your D&D game. Yeah, Flight I feel like man. we have everything we need to do to create a Final Fantasy VI like campaign. Right? <laughs> we start in the mechs, we go, we go, we go. Eventually, we get an airship. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, now I, I'm going to jump over to PF2 again real quick. So here is somewhere that Paizo was way braver than Wizards of the Coast. Airships are in the core rules. <laughs> They're in the game mastery guide. It's like galleons, rowboats, airships. Like it's just right in there. You're like yeah, of course there are airships. One of these is not like the other, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, airships they exist in both fifth edition and Pathfinder second edition. So if you have dreams of being on an airship, don't let your memes be dreams. I'm, I'm looking at the gold cost for an airship in five E. So twenty thousand gold in That's... a world where gold is worthless. You could have and I can just gold. save it up. It, th- this is why it made much more sense in. 3.x where like the the monetary thing was a very strict a very regimented and exponential progression throughout your character's life they gave three examples so like if you wanted to just like build an abrams in <laughs> you know it in your your D game it would be a couple million gold which is insane like you, you're you're you know you're not going to get there you know they, they offered things like if you wanted like like a loader you know, basically an, an exoskeleton like from the original alien you could get that for like ten thousand gold, which you could pretty reasonably buy as like a like an eighth level character. There was some really neat stuff you could do if if your DM was willing to allow that in. It was it was a good time. Yeah, the entire campaign is just a heist to get the million gold <laughs> to, to build yourself an Abrams tank to go solve all of your other problems. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> what were our other problems? I don't remember anymore. But we have a tank. <laughs> Name the tank, Elminster. Elminster rolls into town. Oh no, we've got an Elminster problem. (laughs) (laughs) You do now. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. So, battle maps in flight. Yeah. Random's hit on this a couple of times, and we've talked about it in our game. The short answer is I don't think anybody has come up with a perfect solution. Your best case scenario is either using a virtual tabletop that just has that built in as a feature. Like I know there are some 3d virtual tabletops where instead of roll 20, where it's like a top down 2d view, you've got a rotatable 3d map of the world. So you could reasonably move tokens up and down to indicate elevation. If you're playing in physical space, yeah, maybe you've got something to prop things up on random called this out earlier. The, Jewel cases that sets of dice come in, those like rectangular clear plastic things, uh, both convenient miniature storage and a convenient thing to stand your miniature on when they're flying. But problem is they only come in one height. So there are people who sell uh, flight stands that you that are essentially like a column that you sit on the table and then you can precariously balance your miniature on top of it. And I'm sure that's probably fine (laughs) as long as everyone's very gentle about touching the table. There just isn't a perfect solution. So just try to be patient with everybody. Yeah. I feel like if if you told me to solve that problem on a table, I would take an extra D20 and just assume like five foot flight intervals, which is only going to get me to a hundred feet. That's still really good. Yeah. While we've touched on some of these earlier, I, I, I do want to just say, 
we, we've talked a lot about like what to do from the DM side, but if you're a player and your DM is throwing a lot of flying things at you, you know, grapple like uh, Bugbear is going to do here shortly. Uh, <laughs> we, we talked about that. Well, so what, what happens, right? So uh, we're, uh, let's actually plan this out. Okay, so our, our monk Pabu is going to aid you in you leaping to extend your claws and grab a hold of said dragon. Mm-hmm. And then you are going to successfully grapple the dragon. Then what happens? Like, hey, you've caught it. Now what? <laughs> I, uh, I'm the dog who's caught the bus. Uh, nobody knows. Call back to earlier in the episode. We talked about if if a flying creature's speed is reduced to zero, if it's not held al- if it's not held off by magic, quote unquote, it falls. And having the grappled condition reduces your speed to zero. So if something grapples you in flight, you fall. Similarly, if you fall prone, you also fall while flying. So grapple or shove, either option works. Okay, so instead of grappling it, you could actually just get up there into its safety donut mm-hmm. and shove it. Yes, I absolutely could. The, the reason I'm going to opt for flying in my specific case is flying happens immediately in fifth Gra- edition. So, grappling. Or falling. Falling. We, okay. we got good. there. We good, got good, there. Good, good. Okay. team. My Path of the Beast Barbarian, who's level six, uh, can choose the the leap option, which lets me roll an athletics check, add the result to my jump distance, which applies vertically. So I can jump hilarious distances into the sky, grapple things, and then their speed becomes zero, so they fall. I also fall because I'm not flying. I'm falling with style. So we both fall to the ground simultaneously, and since I have not exited the range of the grapple, we both hit the ground prone, and I am still grappling them. Okay, and you you would take fall damage? Yes. Because you've fallen over? Okay, so this makes sense. Yeah. So we both land prone, but I've, I, will have, I will have successfully leapt into the air and suplexed a dragon. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this. I think this is going to yeah. be fantastic. Right. Okay. I just, I just have to hope it's not more than like 25 feet in the air. Otherwise, I'm screwed. I'm, I'm also imagining <laughs> the the awkward thing of if you if you were to jump and you failed the grapple, then you would be uh, entering and leaving, therefore giving an opportunity attack. Fortunately, falling isn't considered movement under your own power. Forced movement, such as falling, being shoved, being thrown okay. or whatever yeah okay so hypothetically if you can leap 30 feet and the creature was at 15 feet and you leapt past them on yes. the way up you would have okay i just want to make sure i get this right yeah, and then absolutely. one more ridiculous thing um if you were to instead of grappling if you were to get up there and you were to shove yes would you fall and then on their turn they would fall so falling always happens immediately oh okay okay cool that makes sense. It gets a little fuzzy when you start falling for multiple rounds because, like, a creature can fall 500 feet, pause, everybody gets a turn, and then it goes right back to falling, which that gets especially confusing if it starts falling not on its turn. So, like, the the rules there are admittedly fuzzy. Yeah. So just work it out with your DM as best because you can. Because this is ridiculous. Okay, yeah, good. Yes. <laughs> All right. I think I think I follow that, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing Bugbear Girls suplex a dragon. Yeah. And in case he fails, not that you're going to have access to one of these, but there are a couple magical things, too, at your disposal. There's the very standard Earthbind, which, you know, a, a druid, sorcerer, warlock, wizard, probably more on the druid side of that, cause, or the, the wizard side. It's just strength save or something falls out of the air, which, very useful. 
there's also control wins that you can do at a much higher level, which will let you, since that is a self-buff instead of a targeted thing, um, you get multiple tries at it, which makes good sense. Those are kind of it. You, you could try net things, but don't. Just <laughs> It's hard. Yeah, in, in general, don't. Wait, say, say that again, though? Net. Like, you can throw a net at things, so the... Okay. Dif- Fifth edition, the difficulty with nets is they have a fight and they have a five foot short range, which means you're always within the other creature's reach, so you're attacking at disadvantage. And if you attack at long range, you're also attacking at disadvantage. So you're almost always attacking at disadvantage with a net unless you go to incredibly dumb lengths to not do that. Like you can take crossbow expert and then use a net from five feet away without disadvantage. It's like, oh god, this is so hard. Okay, yeah, don't use nets. Let's let's not use nets. Okay. And the fifteen foot maximum range, like you're not going to use that on anything flying. Like it's just not going to happen. Well, they're not a problem for other reasons at that point, right? Yeah, it's probably easier to throw your party members at that point. Yeah. Pick pick up a rock, whatever. Improvised <laughs> weapon, go. Yeah. Okay, cool. Pathfinder Second Edition. The solutions to enemies that are flying are surprisingly similar. So. <laughs> PF2 calls the shove equivalent trip, which is what it was called in both Pathfinder 1st Edition and 3X. Instead of, like, I am I am pushing someone, I'm going to do something to make them fall down, therefore trip. If you trip something, they fall prone. If the flying thing is prone, it falls harmlessly to the ground. Very important. It's specifically called out in the prone condition. If a flying creature is knocked prone, they fall harmlessly. So, like... Unlike 5th edition, where you can knock stuff out of the air, make it fall, and take a little bit of damage, if you're going to knock stuff out of the air in Pathfinder, it's it's not going to hurt them, but at least they'll be on the ground. If you trip a thing in the air... Yes. Just, yep, wanted to say it. Okay. <laughs> yep. uh-huh. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you tie their shoelaces together and they fall down while flying. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly uh, right, yeah. So getting into the air to trip things is kind of difficult, the jumping rules in PF2 let you jump way further than in 5th edition. Like the just standard, I'm going to make a slight running jump. Most characters can jump like 10, 15 feet super easily. Yes, <laughs> difficult terrain's a little silly, but it does take an entire action to jump. So you have to like, I'm going to get into position, spend one of my three actions to jump. Anyway, you can jump super high, you can triple your in the air, and then you can fall, but more likely... If you're on the ground facing something that's flying, you want to use something with the ranged trip trait. Now, Pathfinder 2nd Edition doesn't have nets as a weapon. I looked really hard, could not find them. Again, if I'm wrong, someone come correct me. If you're listening to this in the far distant future and Pathfinder 2nd Edition has introduced nets, come and tell me anyway. But there are two weapons that have the ranged trip trait, the Aklis and the Bola. If you've played Pathfinder 1st Edition, you might recognize the Aklis from from Vital Strike Abuse, because you could use it to throw your Vital Strike, and then as a move action, reel it in with the attached rope, and deal like mountains of D8s of damage with this monstrosity. I still don't have a good picture in my head of what an Aklis is. It's described as a club with a fish hook on the end, which more likely you're going to use a Bola. It's a common martial weapon... And basically, you throw it, and you just make an athletics check at range with a minus two penalty, which is, I mean, it's a decent penalty, but it's not so huge that you're going to fail constantly. So if you're a martial character, you're stuck in melee, 
carry some bolas to handle flying enemies. If you've got some cash laying around, get a plus one bola and throw the returning rune on it so you can just throw it over and over again until you get it right. Even if you're not a spellcaster, you have options to handle flying flying enemies from very early levels. Uh, th- there's also Tanglefoot bags, which have existed in previous editions. You just it it's like a bag of explodey glue. Unclear. You throw them at people, they fall down. There's the spell Tanglefoot, which does pretty much the I do exact thing. That sounds like a really complicated net, right? It really does. I, I throw this thing and it explodes and it sticks to you and then you fall out of the ground. Great. We, no, we did it. Okay. Yep. What's weird is the rules as written, the creature is fixed in place and can't move. Is it glued to the sky? Correct. Unclear. <laughs> There's a few of those weird cases in PF2, yeah. like Fog Cloud doesn't specify that it creates a cloud of fog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Creatures within it are concealed, but you can see through the fog cloud completely unobscured. No idea. Um, <laughs> let's see. So there's the spell Tanglefoot, which does basically the same thing as the Tanglefoot bag. And then uh, Gust of Wind is a first level spell, which is a wonderful counter to flying creatures. You hit them with it. They make a save. If they fail, they take some damage, fall prone, and fall out of the sky. Perfect. First level spell, widely available. If you're a spellcaster, that is your go-to counter to flying enemies. And that is that. That is how you handle flying enemies. All right, so next campaign, every roll-up, the entire uh, player character party, we're going to have flying creatures, and it's going to be wonderful. (laughs) All right, party on. All right, I think that's it. Uh, Let's move into the question of the week. Uh, This week, our question of the week comes to us from Twitter, at Sin Chatterton. I'm assuming that's Senator Chatterton. Welcome, Senator Chatterton. Why Monk so bad? Boy, monks in every edition have suffered from mad... And if you haven't read a lot of uh, the website content, this may be a bizarre phrase to you. Multi-ability dependency is a trait shared by basically every melee character to some degree, and some have it worse than others. As a monk, you need your decks to be high, because that's probably how you're going to punch and how you're going to get your armor class high enough that you don't die. But then you also need your wisdom to be high to power like a lot of your class features and to get you that additional bonus to your AC to not die. And then you also need your constitution to be high because you're in melee combat, so you're inevitably going to be hit by monsters, and so then you want to have hit points to not die, and you only get like a D8 hit dice, which is you know pretty standard. Certainly not as good as your your actual martial characters like your your fighter, your barbarian so that that's already three which is a lot and then you know if you want to be good at any of the other things like there's a lot of places that monks can do a lot of things that monks can do which means that there's a lot of places that you want to put things and there's just not enough to go around i mean if you ignored most feats you still wouldn't cap your your dexterity and wisdom until 16, like level 16. And that means that you haven't done a lot of other fun stuff. There there are some things that monks do really well. Um, And, and, you know, if you go and read through the the monk handbook, you will see that there are some monk subclasses that are listed blue because they can do cool things like shoot lasers or (laughs) heal people. You know, especially as you get higher level, the, the amount of key means that you can do a lot of cool stuff. 
But especially at low levels, which is where a lot of people play this stuff, a lot of your stuff is based around short rests. And the problem is a lot of other stronger classes are based around what they can do prolonged rest, which means that they don't often short rest. You know, particularly at low levels, you've got your your clerics, your wizards, your druids. They're all getting their spells back on long rest. Maybe you've got your friendly warlock who is, you know, entreating people to sit down for a snack every once in a while, which is awesome. But a lot of these, your main feature is based around having these breaks that a lot of low-level groups just don't take. At third level, you're going to maybe, I mean, you, you get what, like two key points or something like that when you first pick up your thing. So you get like two cool uses of your stuff per day if you're not taking the appropriate breaks. It's sort of half a social problem around taking enough short rests and half a, a big multi-ability dependency problem. So I, I do want to ask the question real quick. So you said mad multi-ability dependency. Uh, wh- what do we call all the other folks? Sad. Sad. Okay, so we have, we <laughs> have one mad and sad. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Single ability dependent. Okay. Yeah. All right. I guess I should have I walked into that. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler, yes. why, why monks be bad? Why monks be bad? So, so random hit on a, a lot of the biggest pain points with the monk. They do also have some subclasses that are just really difficult to play well or just fundamentally don't work like way of four elements very very cool thematically not a good subclass like eats your key immediately and doesn't do anything great with it also in a lot of cases people hot take here people are using their key wrong randall we're in a game with a monk right now what is the number one thing he uses his key for that's a great question. I guess he doesn't have to burn key for unarmed strikes, right? Not for his regular unarmed strikes, but for flurry of blows, he does. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So that is the classic problem with the way people play monks. They think, I have a bonus action. I'm going to spend some key, and I'm going to do flurry of blows. Flurry of blows is fine, but not great. People need to use stunning fist more, because if you can stun somebody, that it's an off switch for an entire turn for the thing you hit with it. Uh, they do get a constitution save. Constitution saves tend to be high, which is a problem. But you're you're rolling those dice with one key point, and if it works, oh boy, it works. They lose a turn. You and your entire party get advantage on attacks to hit them until the stunned condition wears off. So like the benefit of stunning someone that you hit with stunning strike is so much better than one extra attack that you get from flurry of blows so like flurry of blows is the floor if whatever you're looking at is worse than flurry of blows just never do it because it's just it's not worth it but stunning strike like use that more and then have your team focus their fire. Like, if you have a party that relies heavily on attacks, uh, other martial characters, warlocks, rogues, um, anyone except, like, blaster wizards, basically, stun stuff, pile on the damage. It works really, really well. But as a monk, you do also have to, like, you do have to manage that precious resource because at low levels, you've got, like, two or three key points between short rests. At high levels, you're going to have, like, 15 key per short rest and if you're doing two or three encounters per short rest you can spend like two or three key points per turn and be perfectly fine but yeah at low levels it's definitely hard i'm hoping with with uh the new evolution of dd 5.5 or 60 or whatever it ends up being called i'm really hoping that they'll 
like rebalance the key progression for monks so that they get more at low levels. Yeah, uh, stunning fist guys. Also, uh, pick a good subclass because unfortunately, some of them are just bad. One particular thing I want to call out um, with what I was just mentioning, and correct me if I'm wrong because it's been a minute since I've thought about the the exact wording. You can use stunning fist. It's not an action. You yeah. just use it when you hit. And why correct. this is important is because monks get extra attack, which means that you can do it on your first attack, and if they fail the save, you get advantage on your second attack. It's that good. Yeah. Like it, it starts immediately. And then, on top of that, you can then just walk away because stunned prevents reactions, which means that they won't be able to attack you as you leave the safety donut. It's really good. Stunning Fist in 3.x, I think I literally never used it. It wasn't good because the save DC was so low compared to how saves scaled. It's way better in this edition. If you are an import... Um, from 3.x and you think, oh god, Stunning Fist, why would I ever use this? It's useless. <laughs> no, no. In this edition, it is very good. Yeah, yeah. So I want to question the premise, right? Do you do you rank the monk as being a significantly lower class than other classes? Is the monk on your bottom? It's extremely hard to play. To be diplomatic, monks have a very high ceiling, and but a very, very low floor. Like, if... If you can't figure out how to capitalize on Stunning Fist, if you can't figure out how to capitalize on, like, your subclass features and stuff, it's going to feel really lackluster. Okay. So it's more of a mandolin than a base. That's really what you're getting at? Yeah. That's a good comparison. Good. Okay. So, Sin Chatterton, thank you very much for your question. Uh, Yeah. Next episode, uh, we're going to be talking about setting up Session Zero for your campaign. I'm Randall James. You'll find me at AmateurJack.com and at JackAmateur on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Tyler Kamstra. You'll find me at RPGBot.net, Facebook and Twitter, RPGBOTDOTNET, and Patreon.com slash RPGBot. And I'm Randall Pell. You'll find me prone in the air where I'll be contributing to RPGBot here uh, on the podcast and also writing some articles um, and also in places where people play games, you may find me as Harlequin or Harlequin. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. You can find our podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Uh, we've started to notice the the... Ratings that are happening, we really appreciate it. Also, some of the reviews are great. We're reading them. We're taking the feedback. Mostly positive, but yeah, the the feedback that helps us make us better, we're going to make us better. So, thanks for that. Keep giving it to us. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Thanks, folks. going to start off by making a joke about uh, manners while flying on a plane. When, when we got to the airship section, I was going to 
have a brief aside about like, hey, how do you handle fighting flying enemies from an airship? And I was going to lead with the example of, hey, an, an Aarakocra flies alongside your airship. Flipsy the bird person, and your DM asks you to roll initiative. That's, that's solid. Yeah. That's good. I forgot every single one of them. The person, right? Like, you can't... There's no direction, so... Well, no, I flip the bird person, and now the Aarakocra is prone, and apparently <laughs> falls into the sky. What is so it's it? good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just, like, I'm, I'm going to shove the bird... Okay, that's here's a, here's a question. If you're flying above the deck of my airship mm-hmm. and I shove you prone, do you fall to the deck of the airship? And I guess the answer is yes. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then you just hope that like. Okay. All right. Here's you a better have to question. Chase the airship because the okay. flight if you're, turns. If you're not hanging over the deck of my ship, we have to argue that you have to use your flight speed to keep up with my ship. Yeah. Okay, if you're flying over the deck of my ship, do you still have to use your flight speed to match my velocity? Uh, I'm gonna say yes. Yeah, yeah. But if I show you, okay. Cool. As long as you're not touching, right? Because I mean, that's mm-hmm. okay. Basically, normal force is what makes it so that you stay like on okay. an airship as it flies. All right, I've got a standard two-tier airship, and you decide to stay stationary in front of my my airship. <laughs> Do you take falling damage when my airship rams, rams into you? Probably. Uh, PF2 has specific rules for collisions with vehicles. There's even a DC to avoid it. It's like DC. For an airship, it's like DC 30 reflex, and you take like a mountain of D6s if it hits you. <laughs> How do you character die? Rammed by airship. <laughs> okay. I'm glad this is an option. 